Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here as usual. This week's episode, Robin is flying solo in the studio and his guest is the author Lisa Blower. Before we get to that, a reminder about some of our upcoming shows throughout the Christmas period. There are now very, very few tickets left for Robin and Brian Cox's Compendium of Reason at the Hammersmith Apollo. So make sure you get in right now to get tickets for those. And last week, we've just opened up the balcony for sale at all of the Nine Lessons gigs in London at King's Place and also at the Lowry in Salford. There's just a handful of tickets left for both of the Saturday night shows in London and Lowry. So if that is the only night you can make it, make sure you get those tickets now. There's still good tickets available for the other nights, but they are going quick. So check out cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons for those. A couple of new things out on the Cosmic Shambles network in the past week you may have missed as well. The first of our music videos uh, that we produced with Johnny Berliner and the Stephen Hawking Foundation uh, to help with revision for GCSE physics have come out now. You'll find those on the Cosmic Shambles website as well as our short documentary we made with Helen Chersky about uh, electric motorcycles and the future there, both in racing and on the road. Obviously, uh, electric cars are now commonplace, but uh, not so much with motorcycles. So we made a documentary about uh, where the future lies for that. Uh, both culturally and uh, in terms of the technology. So go to the Cosmic Shambles website or our YouTube channel for that. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. We can't keep making Book Shambles uh, without Patreon support, and we obviously want to keep the podcast free for everyone and ad-free as well, uh, excluding these ads uh but that's you know the stuff we do so it's not really an ad it's it's advertising the other stuff we do which helps us do this so uh go to patreon.com slash book shambles and if you have a dollar a month spare then uh we'd love you to throw it our way now on to this week's episode here is robin and lisa Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, and uh, just so you know, by the way, if you want to find out uh, all, we've done hundreds of these now, and they're all on CosmicShambles.com, as well as uh, with there's lots of interviews with scientists and various articles from scientists and uh, bits and pieces, and we're doing uh, a show at the Albert Hall next year called Sea Shambles, you can find out about that, uh, with some fantastic uh, guest acts, and I'm currently on tour going from Southport to uh, Cardiff with uh, Corsham and Otley and Glasgow and various others in between. That's that done. All the other ones have loads of ads, don't they, for for stuff just to. But we we continue to make this uh, for for next to nothing, so you don't have to have an advert from some company that ultimately we feel politically uncomfortable having 
uh, involved with us. Just my company that you might feel politically uncomfortable having with you now. Just turn off if you do. Anyway, um, I've just eaten a donut and I'm on a sugar rush. And uh, today, joined by the author Lisa Blower, who I've... Uh, uh, her, her book is Dark Over Bill's House is just uh, that is right isn't it I've no got, it's gone dark it's over got, Bill's mothers it's, got, it's gone dark over Bill's mothers because I don't yeah, know the yeah. phrase at all it's, it's no, all it's new to me yeah, it's yeah. Um, uh, it's a series of short stories um, which is it's, I don't want to lump it into I, 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 I read it about a month and a half ago and it's one of those books that once I, I read it I then went immediately and bought another copy for a friend of mine and then another copy for a friend of mine because I knew that they would be interested in it and I'll start off by you. You were saying that um, your your first novel, Sitting Ducks, um, you were described by some uh, in the uh, liberal elite publishing world. Uh, you can tell we've just done a uh, recording with Stuart Lee as well. Uh, uh, the most inauthentic working class voice, uh, and you said that that's been said about other people as well. Yes, it was said to uh, Alan Silito for Saturday Night Sunday Morning. And interestingly, it was the same publisher who said that to me as well. But yeah, too angry, too political, and too working class uh, is what so, I so was it's told. Too work- so, so are they saying you're pretending? To, I mean, when they say things like that, I have no. I I don't know what they mean by an inauthentic working class voice. Um, and then particularly when they ask you at the same time to tone down the dialect because they say it's quite, you know, they find it quite an incoherent read or it's disruptive to the story. Um, when you kind of look at something like train spotting, do you know what I mean? It's I don't quite understand what they're looking for in that sense. Um, but at the same, you know, and then I had other publishers that said to me, maybe if you did this from the point of view of the seven-year-old girl in the novel, that would make the politics more palatable. But it wasn't her story. So what? I mean, I mean, well, we'll we'll come back to this actually because I think there's a lot more I should give some say, which is you know I, I don't like to put people into a block or a lump or whatever, but certainly in, in some of the early conversations we've had, there is now uh, it seems a, a movement. Many people might have heard the episode we did also with uh, Kerry Hudson. Um, um, uh, this there's there's a feeling in the arts that it's become something which may well end up being yet again exclusively kind of middle class and that to break in from other groups uh, apart from the kind of predominantly white male or, or white middle class is getting harder and harder and people like you and Kerry as far as I can see are very much at this kind of like we've got to make sure that other voices are heard it's a mm. book that talked about a lot on, on this is uh, the collection that Charles Fernhoff did um, others which is the very idea behind it is saying the great thing about stories is you can go into other people's worlds and if they are only written by people like me then you have a very limited kind of world view mm. and you can believe that you're it's, it's, we're talking, talking with with Lem Cisse yesterday where you know when he's he's incredibly it's just an amazing book and I'm sure many mm. people have read it now the book uh, my name is why you know he goes through these horrible things that happen to him in care homes and the fact that just and also the these strange we talked about these these kind of uh minor major things such as the minor major thing of never having a hug after the age of 12 because oh. you're in a care home because mm. these people say oh I do this because I love children but they can't show any love mm. um he was saying he'll get people going, yeah, well, I had a bit of a tough background as well, or oh, my dad did... And that bit where we can all... So I'm doing this in a very roundabout way, mm. but we can all say, well, we've all suffered. Mm. And we've all... And that's something, I think, that comes if you don't read too many voices which mm. say, yeah, everyone suffers because it's tough to be human, but it doesn't mm. mean there's a parity in the suffering. Mm. So 
your I mean, do you feel a tremendous in, in terms of what you write and why you write that idea of the importance of, of both kind of social and political ideas behind it? From a political point of view, I often write because if I feel like I can't do anything about it, I can at least write about it. Um, so Sitting Ducks is about the housing crisis uh, and the fallout of Right to Buy in Stoke-on-Trent. And a lot of the stories in It's Gone Dark are about political situations or about the refugee crisis. And, you know, it's my kind of response to it in, in, in a way that is... Not necessarily a unique angle, but it is trying to say something of the stories that you don't normally read about, particularly in the in the media. Um, but I think, f to use an academic term, I, I write what I call fiction that faces inward. So it very much listens to the stories of the people um, in terms of that they're always people that are kind of standing behind you in the supermarket queue. Is, is how I kind of describe them. So they're kind of people that you wouldn't necessarily think that they had a story to say and they certainly wouldn't think they had a story to talk about. They wouldn't feel like they were contributing to history or of any value or of any worth or they weren't doing anything interesting. But actually, they've got these really fantastic stories um, or tiny little things are happening to them that you can sort of realise that it, it is because of that top-down, you know, political decision and it's just sort of filtered down and filtered down and then it's affecting these people. So that's what I try and do in my fiction is just take a little... take that kind of political decision and then give it a snap... you know, sort of look at it from a snapshot perspective, if you like, and, and how it sort of... that just trickled down and affected that individual. Well, that's in in the first story, which is is based around a kind of a, the return to a a, a caravan a holiday, yeah. caravan. And, and that yeah. and that one is it felt so that's got such a level of of sadness to it in terms mm. of or it did to me anyway, which is that from the moment of birth, your main mm. character, her destiny is it's something I think Raúl Martínez, uh, uh, who also wrote Creating Freedom, made a film about the the kind of really for for most people your destiny is made up already from the social situation the cultural mm. situation you're in and and that's what it felt like here's yeah, this you, you see this you know someone the, the joie de vivre the excitement of being a kid the and then as things move on yeah and as things fall apart and as you know the repetition of every and and that yeah. That seems, seems like a very political story, as, but not not overt. It's not as if it's saying it's, it, it by going into that world. You think how many of those people have been yeah. behind me in the supermarket queue? It's it's interesting actually because I didn't write it as a clash uh, conscious story. It's actually based on um, my family's annual pilgrimage to my auntie's caravan in Barmouth uh, from Stoke on Trent, from Badley Green in Stoke on Trent, and how it ostensibly used to take us all day to get there. It was like this seven, eight-hour journey because we used to have all these different stops. And it was only when I did the journey myself when I'd learnt to drive and I realised it was only two hours and I couldn't understand what we were doing for, like, ten hours in the car. Um, and that's where the idea from... And, and I also wrote it when I'd just had my little girl. So I was writing it at, like, four or five o'clock in the morning. So some of it is semi-autobiographical, um, but I also liked the idea of having those stops, if you like, the stops on the journey, almost like um, almost like bollards in the road, if you like, that the, the character had to kind of negotiate in order to go forward. 
But, you know, it's the same journey. It's the same journey. It's the same journey. And no matter, you know, how much that that journey happens, nothing changes. Barmouth never changes. Mm. It's it's still that seaside town that she loved as a little girl, which is what I did, you know, and, you know, I still go there now. But it that's what it was kind of about. But it was only when it got shortlisted for the BBC and I got interviewed by Mark Lawson for Front Row and the first thing he said to me was, so you're a working-class writer then? And I was just like, what does that even mean? Um and it it was just like a sort of pigeonhole and a labelling. And I don't think I'd really looked at my work as being in that canon of working class fiction at all. Not even with Broken Crockery, which was written as an eulogy for my nan. Um, so that came from a place of real raw emotion. But again, that was received as a real working class story. And so I started to revisit all the literature, the Nell Dunn's, the Pat Barker's, mm. the Walter Greenwood's, the Alan Silito's. And I could kind of see where their voices ended and mine began. Um, and I thought, right, OK, if I, you know, I seem to have a knack with voices, I'm hearing them and all these kind of chattering of matriarchs, as I always call it, these women that I grew up with uh, who were always talking, always telling stories, but always about each other, but never about themselves. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I started to tap into. And then I read a lot of Alan Bennett again. I, I reread Talking Heads and thought, that's what I want to do. I want to have this kind of like duo level of characterization, if I can. So there's like a public face, but the private self that's hiding behind the text. That's the real story. Because that's what I thought in that first story is just that there's a bit where it's that moment of return where the caravan now is so broken. Yes. And with it, it's kind of, it, I got a sense, you know, that that character is realising that a lot of the things that have perhaps become nostalgia. Yeah. Uh, uh, t- I mean, I I love Barmouth because it's the home of the uh, uh, Guy and Smith Crabs on the Rampage series of novels, oh, which is, you may not be yes. aware of, but no. uh, something that I, oh, yeah. I, I used to read out loud in various different... Uh, in fact, I will be in with soon. I'm going to do oh, the no. Abattoir uh, Horror Festival. Oh, <laughs> Abattoir <laughs> and uh, Guy and Smith, yeah, all of, all of the, oh, the majority really? of his giant killer crab novels yeah. are set in, uh, in, in Barmouth. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's, I mean, that's even that now, I feel... It, it's danger that I've, I've, I've in any way pigeonholed you because in the end they're, they're just brilliant stories. Thank you. And that's the th- whole thing yeah. of it, which is you know I've, I've just been reading. I was saying to Stuart Lee before and Flannery O'Connor. I was I was uh, reading the Violent Bear It Away, mm. which is you know a very American Southern Gothic enclosed nightmarish world. Mm. And you could say it's a gothic novel. Or you could. There's so many different things you could say, but in the end, what it is is it's just it's a brilliant story which mm. takes you into a world which is not your world. Yeah, and I mean, if you're going to write about place, I mean, I can see how publishers and reviewers do the maths. You know, they go, oh, story set in Stoke-on-Trent and a little bit of dialect. This is obviously a class story. Uh, So I can understand why they, you know, why that labelling has come about. But essentially, these are stories about people and they are family sagas. They're about domestic situations and... You know, what is good about Barmouth is that it resonates with so many people um, and not just it's not just the working classes in that sense. Lots of people will say to me, crikey, this reminds me of my, you know, my holidays as a child and things like that. It, it, it's just essentially taking aspects, I suppose, of my life. Um, again, in, in a way that I haven't thought is very interesting, but you turn them into a story and then they suddenly become interesting. And so I've kind of lent that to different ones. It's like... Um, I was coming out, I used to go to bingo with my nan up in Hanley and uh, I was walking out this one day and there were these two old ladies linking arms and one said to the other, um, she's been retired with no grandkids, the poor cow. 
and I just remember thinking, what a great thing, what a great story. And I wrote Dirty Laundry mm. on the back of that. It was that she's been retired with no grandkids. And that's a very working class thing, that whole idea of life being compartmentalised. And I've suddenly been retired and so now it's my time for grandchildren. But what do you do if you haven't got any grandchildren? And, and then they felt really sorry for it. So it's just little things like that that really grab my attention. So is that, I mean, in terms of so much of any kind of, well, of, of many different things, not merely creating any form of art, is feeling the sense that you've been given permission, that you are allowed to do it. As you were saying, you yeah. know, you meet people and they go, I haven't got any stories. And then you sit with them and you think, well, that's a story and that's a story yeah. and that's the beginning and that's the end and that's, you know, and that, yeah. so... That and, and I know that you do events with you know lots of other authors. Well, mm. in fact, there was one at the Latitude Festival where uh, I forget the name of that anthology. Com- that was, common people. Common people. Yeah. yeah. That you know that part of that experience of watching that, I, I I think is people going, oh, hang on, I've I've got something that I can tell as well. Mm. It's, mm. it's uh, so. Do you, does that has that become part of your work? Do you think not not the work the written work, but in terms of when you go out, do you actually find yourself thinking, "Oh, right, this is"? I wanted to mainly talk about my book and the stories in it, yeah. But it has, uh... yeah. Every, I mean, it is. It's that thing, isn't it? Everybody's got a story to tell, and everybody's got their experiences. Um, and I mean, I suppose the good thing about Common People is that it was a celebration of working class voices, growing up working class, or your experience of working class, and unapologetically so. Um, and it was all based around Kit Duvall's call for more working class writers in literature and publishing. She kind of got to the top with My Name is Leon and sort of said, well, where's everybody else? And uh, and started to kind of talk about it, which has been brilliant. And, and the more she's talked about it, the more she's unearthed authors like myself that have been kind of scurrying around uh, telling these stories. So the fact that we've got more platforms to tell them on like common people is brilliant because now we're kind of all there sharing them and we can relate and things can resonate um, and we start to realise that it's not so much a shared experience. We're all kind of individual as well. We've all mm. had, you know, it's the North is not just this big clump <laughs> of one experience. You know, Stoke-on-Trent, living in Stoke-on-Trent is very different to living in Manchester at a certain time, you know, so it's good that we're putting that back on the map. I noticed mm. the comedian Lee Kyle, who I think is based up in the northeast, where he, he was saying the other day, he said, if you want to get working class people in the theatre, you don't just have to keep writing plays about minors. No, I, <laughs> I yeah, exactly. Was, you know, the, uh... Exactly. I mean, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? it? When you think working class, you automatically think deindustrialization, and you think Thatcher. I mean, the, I mean, these are all things that I kind of write about, I suppose. But essentially, there is a people at the heart, and there are people that are, you know desperately want to be heard. And it is their kind of untold stories, if you like, Um, because it's not just what happens on the strike. I'm more interested in the women that are left at home and Mm. what they're doing in the kitchen or, you know, how they're trying to make ends meet or what's happening to them as a woman. Uh, You know, it's like my nan always used to say, oh, I was too busy to go in for all that women's stuff. Yet she made ammunitions during the war, you know. So (laughs) there's always this kind of paradox as well that they, they don't think themselves worthy and... They always are. <laughs> so who were you when you? I mean, at what point did you know that you thought I want to write this? I want to tell stories because some people know it from a very early age, don't they? And some yeah. some people suddenly there's just a moment of writing. So so when did you think this is? I've always wanted to write. I've always wanted to write. I took it more seriously. Um, when I went to university and I was taught by the poet Archie Markham, uh, 
He was wonderful. He used to have the cricket playing in the background when we had our creative writing uh, sessions. And I wrote a story called Johnny Dangerously, which is actually in the collection. And, I mean, it's been kind of revised. It's a far better version than it was. Um, And he said to me, Lisa, you need to come back to me when you're going to take this more seriously. And I always remember that because... I think he he saw something in me that I didn't really believe was there. And he sent my story to um, colleagues at the University of Manchester and I got a a scholarship to do an MA on the back of that story. And I did that and I wrote a terrible novel. But I was working in radio at the time, uh, in commercial radio, and I was in a terrible amount of debt and I got offered a job up in Newcastle. So I went there and then they sent me to London and then they sent me to Birmingham and then they sent me to Liverpool. And I entered a competition because I was up in Liverpool doing um, the media partnerships for Capital of Culture and I got involved with their Creative Communities programme and there was a, a competition called Oceans of Stories, which was a celebration of the Tall Ships Challenge, I think, that was coming into Liverpool. And it was called Oceans of Stories. Again, this is in the collection. And I just wrote this piece of flash fiction and it became, I think it was runner-up. And I had to read it at an event. And when I read it and people came up to me afterwards and started to talk to me about it, and I thought, I actually want to do this. <laughs> I really want to do this. And so I left radio and I decided that if I was going to do it, I'd need to do it properly. And maybe it's that working class thing in me, but I thought, I can't just be a writer, I'm going to have to have a job. So I applied to do a PhD um, and that's how I ended up at Bangor. I got bursary and I started a PhD in creative and critical writing because I thought the one thing I really need to do is be immersed in it, in literature, and with people who are better than me and people who are going to challenge me and people who are going to inspire me. And I had two wonderful supervisors and I wrote a novel, um, which again didn't find any publication because it was probably too stylized. So did your um, terrible novel get uh, No, published? that's in the no. Morrison's carrier bag. Where Why is it, it terrible belong. then? What's it? Cause that's, is it cause it's you... terribly unstructured. It's called DJ's Whores. It was based on my radio experiences. Um, it's, to- it's actually a child narrator. Um, a lot of it is, is now Curti and Sitting Ducks. I recycle everything. Uh, it's really unstructured. It's really dialogue heavy. Um, it's not very well plotted. All the things that, yeah, I'd never, I'd hate it to see the light of day. And the same with the um, the novel I wrote for my PhD. That was told in blogs, and perhaps what I should have done was produced it as blogs mm. and and seen how it worked. But I've always been very shy of social media, so I didn't do that. Um, but it did actually become a monograph, so <laughs> I got something out of it anyway. Yeah. So that that because I, I know David Keenan mentioned it before, who wrote this memorial device that his. Uh, he, I think, wrote four or five novels beforehand, mm. all of which he destroyed. His his idea was that none of them would even go anywhere near being the yeah. idea of being published. So in your that that bit of that for you <laughs> yeah. is the only way to to learn to write was by going. I'm going to write a novel. Oh my god, yeah, that's got true, rid of yeah. and that awful, awful. It's really. I mean, I've been really lucky that I've been able to go down the academic route um, because I've always had bursaries and scholarships. You know, I've been really lucky, really lucky. And also I've been lucky that there's been people around that have seen something in me. Um, And a lot of the time I've not been ready for that thing (laughs) to be seen and to be harnessed or whatever. Um, As I see now as a lecturer, I see it from the other side now with students who have got such talent, but they're not quite ready yet. And then there's there's others that are trying to kind of run before they can walk. Um, So I have been really lucky in that sense. I... I, the thing is that I've always 
kind of done with the novels as well is that I know that I'm a, a better short story writer. Um, I think in short stories. And when I write a novel, I almost write an interconnecting short stories, which is perhaps why I, my novels aren't getting there yet. Do, mm. do you know what I mean? Um, I, and that's not me being self-deprecating. It's me kind of going, no, I've still got quite a lot to learn. I, I know that I've got, I can just snatch that voice with a sto short story. But for some reason, lengthening it, I find really difficult. I don't know why. I can't seem to sort of plot. I've started to plot better. I had a good talk to Kit about it. Kit's a brilliant plotter. She does it all over a spreadsheet. Haven't been that uh, I don't know because organised, that is, but <laughs> what is it about being? Because I, I, even at school, when you were meant to, you know, write out your essay plan, and, yeah, then, and yeah, I could yeah. never do that. I would no. do that in hindsight. I would leave yeah, that yeah, blank yeah. and then pretend I knew. But is that? A f I don't know what that is that puts people off. Because I hate it. I, I, yeah. I don't think I could write a novel. I've, you know, I've written long form nonfiction, but that's that's it. And and mm. even those, I think that would be much better if I had more post it notes and bits of string <laughs> yeah. connecting it all. But yeah. almost like, but by plotting it too much, will you become bored already? That's what I always think. Is my yeah. alibi for the shabby nature of them all is that uh, I think I have to be excited when I'm writing and then yep. that's like when I wrote a film once and the first draft we had a brilliant time with the writer with my friend Carolyn second draft was right and then the third draft was like oh, so bored so boring <laughs> well I've got to take that scene out it's so boring right I was a nightmare to work with you know by the yeah yeah because it, 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 everything had become joyless to me yeah and I think that's, that's why it surprised me there aren't more that. authors that uh, write with other people I don't mean ghostwriters, because we know there's a yes. lot of those, but as in, you know, where you actually... Because very often there is someone who has this wonderful sense of tenacity mm. but may not have the same kind of febrile nature of just here's an idea and here's an idea and here's yeah, an idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. And hand it to somebody. Yeah. Or you do a chapter and then they do a chapter and, they, you know, that's uh, more collaborative. It's interesting because... Um, is it Philip Pullman who says that he writes three pages of A4 every day and... You know, he handwrites it and that's all he does. He does three pages of A4, but he doesn't plot at all because he likes to see where it's just going to take him. And I did a um I did a writer in residence in was it 2016? And I did it as a live public experience. And I drew inspiration from the Mary Webb exhibition and I rewrote I did it like a contemporary reimagining of Gone to Earth, Mary Webb's second novel. And I started off with an empty desk and bare walls and ostensibly put all my research. As, as I researched this novel, I just showed people my novel writing process from scratch. So everything became really visual, all the research, all the photographs, all the news stories. Um, and I, I wrote what actually was quite a rural political novel about fracking in Shropshire. And that really taught me that actual, actually I work visually as opposed to a spreadsheet of plot lines and things mm. like that. Uh, and I need to see what my themes are and my subject matter, and I need to be able to see my characters. I can hear the voices. The voices come really easy. But the rest of it, I need to kind of fill in the gaps. So that residency was brilliant for me because I realised that's the way I could work, is if I turn everything into an exhibition, <laughs> I, can, I can see the story come to life. See, that's what I think, because my, my stand-up, I think, is basically, that's what it is, it's a, it's a very uh, haphazard exhibition. Of, yeah. Oh, I found this and I found that, and I found, yeah, which is why structure yeah. is always a fucking disaster. Well, you, I was going to say, I, that's my, my problem, is that I, I, want, I only think in these little snapshots, they're like these snippets of dialogue that work brilliantly in a short story, but because you've got room to manoeuvre in a novel, I almost feel like I 
overwrite it or I underwrite it because I'm so conscious that I've got to fill a bit more space. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, where actually I think I think that perhaps the novella would suit me. <laughs> who, who were your when you were growing up? Do you remember the first author that you were? Uh, you know that bit where you can't wait for the next book. Roald Dahl. It was. Yeah, Roald Dahl. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is still one of my most favourite books. But Charlie and the Great Glass it. Elevator. Not as good. Not as good. Because I think it's no. fucking awful. It's, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's this weird thing where um, reading that because you know when when my son was still read to him, mm. uh, and we did some of the the Roald Dahl, and then we got to the Great Glass Elevator, and I had this, but I'm kind of reading it going, mm, yeah, and then eventually he's like, yeah, yeah Dad, we can, we can stop this one. It's a really weird. It does not feel like it, any of his other. I mean, Marvelous yeah. Medicine is my my favourite just because yeah. it has that great line about you know she had a uh, a puckered up mouth like a dog's bottom, and uh, <laughs> I've always enjoyed that. But but there is a strange glass elevator. Doesn't feel like it comes from the same place. I don't see no. a man putting his hand yeah. into his little you know yeah. basket of confectionery with delight. Yeah, yeah. I I don't quite know what what that book was about actually, and I I haven't really done enough research to say where his kind of thinking was. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know. But Child and Chocolate Factory is just brilliant on so many different levels. And I teach it now on children's fictions. Uh, and, you know, sort of from that, you know, the duo patterns of characterization, you know, because of the parenting styles and all of that. Um, and I just love it. And I read it to my little girl now. And, you know, I'm trying to... She absolutely loves it. She's now seven. And she loves it now. But I tried to read it to her when she was, like, two. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to read Giant Chocolate Factory. And uh, That's Dr. Seuss time. You know that. Well, it's... Yes, yeah. I know. I know. I know. But... Um, and that and James and the Giant Peach, which is the only book my sister ever read i was the i was the prolific reader in the family you know my dad i think my dad does read some of my stories but he's only ever really read the screw fix catalog <laughs> that's 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 one of the things that i think is easy to forget is when you actually see the statistics on the number of books that most people yeah. have in a house because my house is made of books and of yes, course so most of the people yeah. that i hang around with are the same mm. uh, as that and then i went to someone's house the other day and she didn't. I didn't see any books at all. No, that she, was she, she had She had a book yeah. by her son. Yeah. And That's I scary. couldn't see any. And I'm sure there might have been some somewhere, mm. but they were a very minor part of the the life. And, and I think that that's yeah. where you, because I've, I've I've seen some kind of pretty depressing statistics in terms of the amount of reading and that is across cultural groups as well. That's not just you know yeah. the, the 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 actual issue of. Um, mm. Mm. And it does seem to bring so much excitement. I know it's just that it joy does. of whenever I've been involved with any library campaigns, and you always get some asshole or yeah. other who goes, "Oh, no one goes to libraries anymore, and it's it's it's, mm. it's of a different time." Blah blah blah. You know, when were you last at a library? And it's like every time I go to a library, whether it's my local library or visiting another one, mm. there's always loads of people in there. Yeah, and across yeah. ages as well. It's and true, the kids' yeah. area is full, and all those librarians mm. who do those lovely summer reading challenges yeah. and all of that stuff, and they all get their strange stickers, and then mm. the old people are just sat there with the newspapers or whatever, or people using the yeah. Mm. I had um, in Hanley Library, they gave me an adult library card in the end because I kept getting so many out, um, and I think I was trying to read things. I always remember getting a copy. I don't know why of Howard's End. Uh, when I was about nine, and I, I tried to read it, you know, and, and it's actually become one of my most, it's my, the book I always go back to in the same way. I, th I think it's actually one of the most brilliant books on class 
ever. I think if you want to trace working class fiction to a a heart of a novel, that is the one <laughs> for me anyway. I'm sure lots of other people would disagree. But uh, no, I, I, I'm always a big supporter of libraries and, and just, just it's so important to the community, you know, just to, to, for people to have access to literature mm. more than anything. You know, it breaks my heart that... You know, they they took away the A level in creative writing, and you know the, the storytelling and with children and things like that. Yeah, I, I automatically, you know, I, I part of me would love my daughter to go to a school that takes them to the library once a week mm. and just says go and burrow and ferret and and furk around <laughs> and forage and just look at what books are and you know they don't necessarily to read them but just have that kind of tactile experience so they're not automatically going to be part of that digital generation where it's all on a kindle you know and just go in and see how much love goes into a book because it does you know it's who who else was what were the regular things you took out then so so when you're going down the library Hanley Library what were you uh... Oh gosh I can't remember do you know what I I think it was things like Mallory Towers Oh god yeah they... <laughs> Is that Ina Blight are they, they Ina yeah. Blight in the Mallory Towers yeah Yeah Darrell or Darrell Rivers I can't remember I always used to say Darrell Rivers and then somebody said no it's Darrell uh, I used to love Mallory Towers I loved the idea of that they had a swimming pool that was made by in the rocks and it was made of seawater I used to love it um, yeah, Mallory Towers, it's one of those Millie in Molly Margate Mandy. as well, I think, isn't there? Yeah. Is not there one of those in Margate down on the beach? They've got there? one of those. Uh... I've been, I've been to like a seawater pool in Bondi, but <laughs> I didn't know there was ones in England. Um, Millie Molly Mandy, mm. yeah, anything by Dahl, I, I chomp through Dahl, always chomp through Dahl. Um, and Do you ever have? Because it's something that I'm magic always faraway in... tree. Oh, magic faraway. Yeah, I remember. I read those with my son. Yeah, <laughs> just There's, love uh, those. Um, we're nearly out of time, so I want to know uh, who are you reading now? Uh, not not today okay. necessarily, but again, the the authors uh, that you go. Oh, I've just read. There's going to be a new one by them. I'm halfway through Jeanette Winterson's Frankenstein, right? Uh, which I'm loving, uh, and I have just finished Joe Dunthorne's. Um, short story I, I can't remember the title of it but it's the one that got shortlisted for the Sunday Times and don't worry you will remember it in a brilliant. moment because you've got a screen behind you and it's about brilliant. to get looked up it's something uh, all the poem all the poems mean something to somebody it's called it's Joe Dunthorne. Joe Dunthorne. D U N T H O R N. It's brilliant. Have you read it? You should no. read it. It is just. I try. Cracking. There's too much bloody stuff, right? You know, this is the it's... thing. It drives me mad. It beat me to it. No, uh, it's called "All These Poems Will Mean Something to Someone" or something like that. But he uses, you know, when you have the about the author sections, mm. he uses that as the as the format, um, and it's about the author that is. So the author has, has put together this poetry anthology and it says about the author and then he uses that format to talk about his life but interspersed with the other authors within the book that he feels are overshadowing him. All the poems contained within will mean everything to everyone. Oh, that's a great title, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. And it's so good. And I read that the other day, and I just think it is brilliant. Uh, and if anything that Kazu Ishiguro brings out, I'm first in the queue. <laughs> now, there's a great remains of the day when you were talking amazing about book. kind of, amazing you know, book. class. Mm, and uh, That's another one, yeah. We were talking the other day about, yeah. I don't know if you've read Isabel Colgate's uh, no. um, The Shooting Party. 
which I think means different things to different people because ah. I watched the, uh, the, the it is, it's, uh, we were talking about the other day where it's all about the kind of the end of, of the aristocracy, yeah, yeah. The, the just before the First World War. Yeah. yeah. And it has a fantastic scene between uh, a dying mm. Gordon Jackson, who's got kind of a bit of a poacher and one of the beaters, <laughs> and James Mason. It's one of James Mason's. It's a beautiful thing. John Gielgud's in it as uh, someone who's very much into animal rights and oh, is there, okay. who, what you're doing is murdering animals. And then he gets kind of, <laughs> As, as he walks past the shooting guns with "Thou shalt not kill," uh, then he's dragged to James Mason, and James Mason yeah. goes, "It's a very nice pamphlet you've got here. Who does the pamphlet?" And they have this yeah. beautiful little, just two great actors being being wonderful. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's a very interesting novel as well. Okay. But that's what I always find interesting, like with some of your stories, which I'm sure I've read in a different way to your intention, perhaps. But <laughs> finding those different things, yeah. that's that's why I just find reading such an active thing, isn't it? Where yeah. When I read, what's it called? Shirley Jackson, uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle. Yes. For some reason, I, I just, I, I knew nothing about Shirley Jackson. I just knew I wanted to read some of her books. Yeah. And I read the whole thing as if it was set in England, in a country, a little yeah. country house in England. And it's not. It's, mm. Yeah, and it, and it it doesn't necessarily change the, what I saw in my head. Mm. Mm. But or we were talking before, but with mm. Flannery, uh, uh, Stuart Lee briefly, mm. about Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the violent bear it away. She was very Catholic. And... I think the the allegory that she is writing, that she spent, I think, 10 years writing, a very long time writing that novel, the final novel, knowing she was going to die, I think her visions of what might well possibly be the devil, etc., mm. it's not what I'm seeing at all. Mm, mm. I, I, I'm I'm creating heroes out of her villains. You know, yeah, that, that's yeah. what I think no, is it's just true. It's true. I mean, I read a lot of short stories. I mean, they always say, don't they, that short story writers are their own readers, uh, and that's very true. Um, and I've, I'm I'm halfway through as well. Chris Powers' mothers, um, which is brilliant, and 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 they are that 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 those kind of stories that the stories that you're reading are not the ones that you're left thinking about, mm. uh, and I, I just think that's just cracking writing, and I wish I could read more for pleasure. I think the thing is when you start when you are kind of teaching creative writing, and you're writing, I write thing I, I read things and I. I get to it halfway down the page and think, oh, that's a really good idea. But that's pleasurable, <laughs> isn't it? What is reading for pleasure? That's what I wonder. I know, that that I, idea I, of just being able to go, I'm just... Because yeah. every book I have has pencil scribbles yeah. in it for possible ideas that come from it. I can see what they've done there. I can see what they've done there. Or, oh, I don't think I'd add that sentence there. I might have had it at the bottom. Mm. Uh, yeah, you're sort of editing as you go along. It's Yeah, it's really funny Oh, that I bit read. I can yeah. see, as opposed to Joy going, oh, that's a beautiful sentence. But that bit of going, I know what they've done there. Yeah, I can see what they've done there. And... I always remember um, one of my favourite books, if you can have favourite books, is um, We're All Completely Beside Ourselves, Karen Joy oh, yeah. Fowler. And um, I, I, I knew, I hadn't read any of the hype about it, but I knew from like page two or three who Fern was. And I could just see how she'd signposted it. You know, you're almost kind of like tuned in to know what the you know what mm. that writer is doing and and that there are techniques and that there are devices and in some respects then that validates the way that you are teaching in a way because you can't teach creative writing you can nurture talent and skill and sort of maneuver people 
in the in the direction they want to take. But I always kind of feel like when you are reading something and you can see see those signposts and you think, oh yeah. I can... <laughs> are there <laughs> any books those? that you would recommend for? We've kind of gone to the end, but I was just thinking about books on writing. Well, A.L. Kennedy wrote a book on writing, collection of things. Yeah. Stephen King wrote a book on writing, which well, I thought yeah, was that's, quite. Yeah, I, to be honest, I shy away from them um, because it's not that I don't agree with them. I think there are. They're, they are aids, but they're not going to make you the writer you want to be. Only you can be the writer that you want to be. And I think if you start thinking that there's rules and there's boundaries and there's, you know, that this idea is going to work and this genesis is going to work, then you're kind of erring on the side of writing formulaically rather than mm. actually listening to the person, listening to the writer inside you, uh, which I know sounds a little bit philosophical but <laughs> do you know what I mean it's it's kind of me being quite belligerent if you like with the voices that I keep writing that's the voice I hear that's the story I want to tell that's pissed me off in society I want to write that and you know maybe I'm missing out on my big publishing deals I don't know but <laughs> I'm being true to what I want to, to what I want to write about so yeah I, I yeah they're not my favorite things but I can see why people use them A.L. Kennedy is great about speaking about writing, though. Don't you have a view of that? Yeah, yeah. I, I see that's the thing, and I think that's the thing, is that everybody kind of wants access to writers. They think that, you know, writers will tell you how to be writers. They can tell you how to be a writer, but it's still down to you. Oh, yeah, she never told you how to be a writer. No. That's one of, in fact, Stephen King's book on writing doesn't, doesn't really tell you how to be a writer. writer. No, not yeah, at all. Not at all. Uh, not at all. Lisa Blower, thank you very much. And thank uh, you. you uh, you're off. To, you're doing lots of different events. I know you were at Milton yeah. Keynes Book Festival the other. Uh, I was. Uh, yeah, at Milton Keynes at the weekend. I'm off to Brighton tomorrow for a literary you, salon. Uh, Brighton in the past, probably now. <laughs> yeah, because this this probably go out in a few weeks' time. All oh, right. Okay. So where are you going to be in November, so, December? Have you, have you got... But I'm doing Sheffield. Um, off the shelf. Uh, so yeah, if there's people around, do come. Oh, that's I think I'm on my own I think I've for about that. forty I think minutes. I've done that once. Yeah, I'm doing uh, Manchester Literature Festival, Shrewsbury Literature Festival at the end of November. Um, and then I think that's it for this year. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening, everyone. Me. Thank you Thank for you. being on. And uh, go to cosmicshambles.com website to find out about all the shows coming up, live shows, new podcasts, bits and pieces by uh, scientists, philosophers, psychologists, and ne'er do wells generally. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show. Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help us out as well. Check out Robin on tour with Chaos of Delight at the moment with She Makes War along for a lot of those gigs as well. Nine lessons and carols for curious people. Look forward to seeing you there. Have a great week. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Oh, and people keep uh, asking where they can get the reading lists for the episodes, uh, and I keep forgetting to remind you. Cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles is where you find all the previous episodes of Book Shambles and each episode's reading list as well. So if you missed something in this week's episode, head there. All the books that have been mentioned uh, are listed there. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.